Today's message has nothing to do with flowers or balloons or bright colors. This is from our spring program. Was it, were any of you there at the spring program? It was wonderful. We have an awesome school and great students. And if you see AGA staff here today, just let them know they're doing an amazing job. It was a hard school year, and I see them almost every day, and I'm impressed almost every day. God's given us a huge ministry here. So we, we left these up to appreciate just some of the bright and cheerful ministry of Amazing Grace. We're not going to talk about Hawaii, but we are going to go to Galilee today in our message. So we're going to Galilee on our tour. We're talking about faith, and maybe you answered a question like this in Sabbath school when you're a little kid, but I'm going to invite you to answer a question so you can turn to a partner and answer a question. Uh, how do we grow in our faith? Answer that question with somebody. How do we grow in our faith? It's okay to talk. How do we grow in our faith? I can't hear you, but I bet somebody said, read your Bible. I bet someone said, pray. Someone said, go to church. There are things we can do to grow in our faith, but this is, this is a summary of our message right here, and it kind of just hit me this way last night. We can talk about growing in our faith in a shameful way, like you just need to do more. We're going to try to talk about it in an inspiring way, like our God is so much more. So having a better faith is not about at faith. You follow me? It's about having faith in something better. I'll say it again. So, having a better faith is not about doing better at faith, but having faith in something better. So another way to say it is that a great faith is not made by the effort of our faith, but by the object of our faith. I could have a great faith in Bigfoot. I could give like 50% of my income to Bigfoot research and go out every weekend and that still makes it just a faith in an imaginary American primate, right? It's not a great faith because the object of my faith is something not great. But I can have a solid faith in an almighty God and the object of my faith is what makes it great. So we're going to grow in faith today by trying to look at a God who is just so good. And that's how faith grows. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself today. We've talked about you a lot, and we've read about you and thought about you, and each one of us has some experience with you. And I pray our faith would, would grow this Sabbath day by seeing you in a bit more of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So by the time the tour reached Galilee, I was overstimulated. Like, we'd been to all these historically significant and spiritually significant places. It was a faith-building journey. So just backing up a ways. It was day five when we arrived in Galilee. The first four days... The itinerary was loaded, and you've seen some of these from the sermons. We went to 
Rabbah, the, the citadel in Amman, and saw the ruins there. We stood on Mount Nebo and looked over into the promised land. We went to this hill, which is a palace of Herod named Macarus, where John the Baptist was believed to be imprisoned and beheaded. Walked around on these ancient ruins. We, there's the place where they believed prisoners were held. We went to Petra. This one's not my picture. Somehow I did not get pictures at Petra saved. But Petra's amazing. It's like exploring the national parks of southern Utah with red rock canyons, except for they have carved villages into them in ancient and biblically significant history. So we wandered around during, we took a whole Sabbath at Petra. And then from there we went to the Dead Sea and floated. You can just float in the Dead Sea. And I also did not put a picture of me on here, but we did cover ourselves in the mud. They have this mineral mud that they sell. Well, we covered ourselves like completely from head to toe in this mud. And I lost a picture of me, but that's probably a good thing. I can show you pictures of other people covered in mud. And then we went from there to the Jordan River where we participated in pilgrims' baptisms. Uh, if it looks kind of dirty and small, it's because it's kind of dirty and small. So one side of that river is Israel, the other side is Jordan. And I kept telling the tour guide, I think I could jump from one side to the other. And he said, don't do it. There might be guards with machine guns over there, and you don't want that to happen. So I didn't jump from Jordan to Israel, but that river is not as impressive maybe as it once was. Jesus was baptized, and it says he went there because there was lots of water there. But it's been uh, siphoned off for irrigation. So it's a pretty weak river there right above the, the Sea of Galilee. Then we crossed, it, or the Dead Sea. Then we crossed into Israel. We had the chance to go to Jericho. Can't quite see it there, but it says it's the oldest city in the world. It also is the lowest place in the world, the lowest city in the world. 1,300 feet below sea level. And this is a picture, I don't know if you can tell, but these are people working on a wall in Jericho. So I had to take the picture because the walls came tumbling down. So I had this urge to march around these guys. They're building this wall in Jericho. And um, we also had other humorous pieces of that, that trip. As we went out of Jericho, we saw a sycamore tree. And, you know, Zacchaeus... And there was a forklift next to it. One, one of us, in, someone in the tour bus says, oh, now we know how the short guy got up in the tree. You know, the, and so I didn't get a picture of that one, but someone else did. We were having a lot of fun. Then we went to this place called En Gedi. And En Gedi has these springs of water. It's on the west side of the Dead Sea. And so it's just got all these plants and flowers and beautiful uh, vegetation. Um, I did find milk and honey there. I thought... Ah, the Bible was right. Land flowing with milk and honey. And then we saw, just right behind our resort in Engedi, there's these hills. And this is a wilderness where David would have wandered, hid from Saul. So he left Jerusalem into the hills. And there's caves in these hills. I don't know which one David was in, but somewhere around there, David hid in caves from Saul. And I just got to look at these spots and think about the significance. Behind me is a cave. Can you see right by my arm, just right down there, there's a cave. Um, and that is one of the caves, I think there's eight or so, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in. So we went to this site, this ancient community of Qumran, and saw 
tables where they would have worked on the scrolls and mikvahs where they would have had ceremonial bathing. And then we saw the caves where they found the scrolls. Then we went just south from there and went on a tram up to the top of Masada and got to see some amazing history when people fled after the destruction of Jerusalem and they occupied this mountaintop palace and then it was sieged and um, got to see those ruins there on the top of Masada. And then from there, our bus took us north up to the Sea of Galilee and I, I was having an amazing time. I was loving it. But once we arrived in Galilee, it was like a a change of tone for me. Because I had been, for the previous four days, exploring Bible lands. And then I suddenly realized I'm in Jesus land now. Like, it's not just Bible lands. This is the place where Jesus lived and did most of his miracles. And I get to walk here and see these things. Our hotel was right on the water, so we got to go swim in that body of water that Jesus walked on. And uh, what I decided is, even though our itinerary had some awesome things in Galilee, I had a piece I needed to add to that itinerary for myself. In Galilee, we're told that Jesus rose early in the morning to be with his Father. So we spent two, we had two mornings in Galilee. On morning number one, I got up and went down to the water about 5 a.m., watched the sunrise. I put my feet in the water. It was, they told us, 86 degrees. And those are fish nibbling at my toes. They just came up and nibbled at my toes. And I laid back, just watched the sunrise, and I opened to Matthew 4. I read the temptations. And then Matthew 4 is the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And what I read, I had this journal, and I was writing frantically, at, like, everything. <laughs> that I could get, this journal. So I'm writing down what, what I'm experiencing that morning in worship. And in Matthew 4, I read about light as I'm watching the sun come up. So these were like worship moments. And I guess I'll just grab it out of the Bible. Here it is. So Matthew 4, verse 12, begins his Galilean ministry. And then it says, a little later on, it says, The land of Zebulon and Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those in the region and the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I'm reading this, watching the sun come up, you know, the physical illustration of dark to light, thinking about the spiritual reality of darkness and light. And it says, on this land, the one I'm sitting in right at that moment, a light has dawned. And I wrote in my journal, um, you know, I, I thought about how so many people there missed the light. And I wrote in my journal, I must see this light can't miss this light. Light has shown into my life in so many ways, even though I didn't live in Galilee at the time of Christ. I've had so many advantages to knowing God. I must not miss the light. And that was morning one in Galilee, but I had one more morning, and I took Mark 1.35 that says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to be alone with his father. So I knew 
I had to leave the hotel. The first morning, I'd seen multiple people having their own devotional time. So I got up earlier this time. I got up at 4.30, and I went to leave. But they didn't just have a door you walked out of. They had a gate, and it was metal, and it was locked. So I shook the gate and woke up the guard. And you know, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Hebrew or whatever he spoke. And he probably shouldn't have let a foreigner out into the streets at 4 a.m. while it was dark, but he just opened the gate, and I walked out. And there was a hill right behind the hotel. Those lights down there are the hotel. So I just started walking right up this hill, and it was, there's no trail. But what I did is I just mentally kept track of everything I was seeing because I was aware that this is probably the closest I would ever get to simulating morning Jesus style. The same place, same time of day. And so in my journal, I wrote down every little thing I experienced. It was a sandy hill and it was brushy. The only other person I, the only other being I encountered was a kitten and I startled it and it ran off. And then I found this overhanging rock, and when I got there, I had been kind of scraped up by some thorns, and I had these seeds of grass stuck to my leg. I'm think, I start picking them off, and I'm thinking, maybe, maybe the same thorns from the same plant scratched Jesus' legs. Maybe the same types of seeds were seeds he had to pick off. And by that time, I was kind of sweaty, and there was this fly buzzing around, kept landing on me. And I looked out and watched the sunrise, and what I heard was, I heard the clanging of an oar on the side of a boat. And there was fishermen. About five o'clock, the first boat full of, you know, four or five fishermen heads out onto the water and it echoed up and I could hear those things. And I thought, maybe, maybe there's not been a day between the time Christ got up in the morning and when I got up in the morning where someone hasn't taken a boat out on that lake to fish. And I'm taking in this scene knowing that this is probably similar to what Jesus saw. And not only that, it's the same Father who wants to speak with me. These were really powerful moments for me. But the most powerful moment happened a little later when I actually had the opportunity to get out on that lake. So worship moments for me just kept piling up in Galilee. It was proving to be a very special place then they took us out on a boat, and we sailed along the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, looking out at different scenes, and the guide would be, uh, we went with uh, Carl Cozart from Walla Walla University, and he'd point out different things along, this is where this story happened, and this is where they believed that story happened, and I separated myself a little bit from the group, just to lean against the rail and take in the scenes, and they had these speakers, and after we, we got done with the guided tour piece, the captain just put on some Christian music. And the song, How Great Is Our God, came on. And I was leaning against the rail, looking out. That hill right about in my view is where they believe the Sermon on the Mount was preached, where they believed that Jesus fed the 5,000. It's now covered with a banana orchard. Is, it, is that what you call it, an orchard, plantain? They grow bananas there. And I was looking out thinking, how great is our God? And the scene and the thoughts and the music just moved me to tears. How great is our God? You don't have to be on a boat in Galilee to survey life and realize God is so great. 
And in that moment, I realized, you know, there were people in the time of Christ who had moments like that. Maybe they were on that mount looking at Jesus teach, and they probably had tears in their eyes because not, you know, I'm looking at history thinking about how significant this time Christ spent on earth was. They were watching it. They were looking at the greatness of God with their own eyes. There's probably countless worship moments that never got recorded in Scripture where someone saw Jesus and experienced something and they just worshiped. How great is our God? It would seem that Galilee faith, experiencing the greatness of God in such an intense way, would be the strongest of all types of faith. But Galilee is not known for having great faith. Galilee faith is the kind of faith that uh, gathered in groups for the sermon, but then when they got in the storm, they panicked. Galilee faith is the kind that ate the bread and had their fill, as Jesus said. They liked the miracles, but then when Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, that kind of upset their stomachs. They loved what Jesus could do, but they weren't so sold on who he claimed to be. Galilee faith went so far... And it just stopped there. It didn't go all the way. In fact, there had come a point when Jesus, very sad and disappointed, would look at Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, and he'd say, Woe to you. If the miracles performed in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago because Galilee faith gets hung up somewhere. So we're going to talk about Galilee faith as a faith that we actually want to move beyond. When we talked about the Nebo promise, that was a good thing. And we talked uh, about Rabbah honor, that was a good thing. Well, Galilee faith is a faith that we actually want to surpass. Are you ready to go past Galilee faith? There are a few trademarks of Galilee faith that I pick up in the story of Jesus calming the storm. I think they're super significant, and each one of us can relate to them. So here are trademarks of a faith that's interested, but it's not fully convinced. So we're going to go to that story. That story is in multiple places, but we're going to go to Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4, we're going to look to go beyond this, this little faith. As I leaned against the rail and thought about the great moments of God's goodness, I, I thought this. Experiencing a great God is not equal to living with great faith. Like, we should do everything we can to experience God, to have those wonderful moments of worship, but it's not enough just to have a moment of feeling like God is really good. What we need to do to go beyond Galilee faith is let those moments transform our lives. Not just looking and saying, wow, that was so impressive, but then saying, that impressive God is the God I want to guide every step of my life. So maybe you've had some of those moments like leaning against that rail. Praise God for those. Those are faith building. Now, what we need to do to go beyond Galilee faith is take those moments. Maybe it's a worship service, a song you sing, or whatever it is that, where you connect with God. Take those moments of connection and transfer that into the lifestyle we live. That's what we're going to try to do, moving beyond Galilee faith. So here are the two questions asked. You might not quite see it yet, but these two questions reveal a Galilee faith. The questions asked in the story are, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And the next question a little later on is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Those are the two questions that are going to inform what Galilee faith is and maybe how we can move beyond that. So starting in verse 35, it says, On that day, and that day I'm not exactly sure how long the scripture account of that day would be, but it certainly include, included the whole chapter, the teachings, the parable of the sower. Jesus was very busy that day. So we can't fault him too much for getting really tired and falling asleep in a boat. It was a busy day of ministry in Galilee. So on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Pretty simple instruction from Jesus. Let us go across to the other side. I'm sure Jesus has, in your life, done something like that. You're going along in life, and he says, hey, I got something different for you. Let's go across to the other side. Why did Jesus have them go across to the other side? I'm just going to guess that maybe part of his reasoning for getting in that boat and crossing to the other side was precisely that they would experience a storm and have the opportunity to put their faith in him. Maybe one of the, one of the reasons God calls us to the other side is just to go through the troubles with him and find him faithful. But if you keep reading to Mark 5, you know what story that is? It's the d demoniac. So apparently the reason they're going to the other side was to have an encounter with a demon-possessed man. So imagine if Mark 4.35 said, Jesus said to them, let us go and sail through a crazy life-threatening storm so that we can have an encounter with demons. That wouldn't have sounded near as exciting as come let us go to the other side. And as you look back on your life, there's a few times that maybe God's leading could be paraphrased like that. Like he led you through something very hard and I think it's an awfully good thing that we don't know all the troubles before they happen. Because when we choose to follow Jesus, that means we're, we're letting him lead. And Jesus doesn't shy away from leading us through hard things. And it can grow a little faith into something much stronger. So here they are going to the other side. It's not the most glamorous of trips when you know how it's going to go and where they're going. But it says, And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. I guess I missed that detail most of my life, that it's a small fleet of boats. So in the storm, there were many people who felt like they were going to die. They just didn't have Jesus in their boat. So we don't get, get their stories. But there were many people who also saw the authority of God to stand up and calm the wind and the waves. So this was a faith-growing experience for a, a whole group of people, not just a few disciples. Other boats were with him. And we have an idea of what these boats are like. So maybe you have a picture from a Bible story or a Sabbath school class of these boats. Uh, there actually is a boat that is called the Jesus Boat. And it was found in 1986. But it's a first century Galilean fishing boat. And we had a chance to go see that boat right before we got on the big boat. So this is the boat. It's the, the wooden hole of a fishing boat. This one's about, it's 26 and a half feet long. It's six, seven and a half feet wide and four and a half feet deep. And it's not huge. So this is a picture of them pulling it out. You can see the size of people next to the boat. 
the way this boat was preserved is that there was a storm. So storms happened in Galilee, and this boat didn't make it. So not every boat on a storm in Galilee got the wind and the waves to calm down. This one didn't make it, and it was sunk, and it was sunk into mud. It was completely covered by mud. And that mud, they explained the science to us and how that mud was just perfect to preserve it, but it cut off oxygen and actually preserved the wood of this boat for 2,000 years. So when it was accidentally found, they, they had this hard time recovering it because as they'd pull it out and it hit the air, then it would not be preserved. So they covered it in foam and they took it out and then took the foam off and preserved it. So we have a Jesus boat. It's about like that. Someone rowing, someone casting a net. A scary boat to be caught in a storm in. Maybe it's a side note, but I think it's a really important point. How was that boat preserved? It sunk. If that boat didn't sink, it would have gone back to port and eventually... Wood would have deteriorated, someone would have repurposed it, they would have put it in a junkyard, and we would not have any Jesus boat today. And it's a, it's a significant piece of archaeology. It, it validates that there was this Galilean fishing community like the Bible describes. That boat was preserved because of tragedy. It's possible, it's possible that the way God works with like the physical material of that boat, he does that in your life too, that the tragedy and the trouble we experience today might actually be the thing that preserves faith in a future generation. You follow me? We wouldn't have any boat to look at today if there wasn't a tragedy. That boat can increase our faith in the biblical account. Maybe your tragedy in life is the very thing that will preserve faith for a future generation. We can find historical examples of this in, in archaeology all over the place. I mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know how they were preserved? I don't know what their plan would have been with the scrolls. But the reason they were put into caves is that this community of Qumran was busy writing scrolls, and then here come the Romans, ready to... They took over Jerusalem, and now they were seeking the Jews, and they retreated, and, and they left everything there and never returned. So they put these scrolls in a cave. It was their tragedy that actually preserved these texts so we could find them and in the 40s, and we could have this affirmation of our faith. Maybe the hardest thing you're going through is God's intention of preserving faith for you or someone else. So don't despair too much in the storm. And it says a great windstorm. So the Greek uses the word mega. It's a mega storm. The parallel story in Matthew uses the word seismos, which is earthquake. So it was a big storm, and storms were common on Galilee. So a great windstorm arose, and the wind, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So this is a picture, kind of looks Alaskan. That's snow, and that is 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. That's a ski slope on Mount Hermon. So the waters that fill, this is, this is a freshwater lake, Galilee, the waters that fill Galilee come off mountains. To the east, we have hills that rise about 3,000 feet above the lake to the Golan Heights. To the west, we have these foothills in Galilee that rise about 1,500 feet. And then Mount Hermon Summit is 9,200 feet. 
And the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake, almost 700 feet below sea level. So what I'm told, I'm not a meteorologist, but what I'm told is that the cold air from those three directions come in, they meet the warm air coming off that 86-degree lake, and it causes some crazy winds. So historically, this lake has some wild storms. Additionally, it's in what they call the Jordan Rift Valley. So here's the Jordan River, and here's the Sea of Galilee, and there's actually two plates that meet up, and there are earthquakes in that area. So history has seen some wild storms. This was one of them. And Jesus is in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said, so here's the first question that reveals this Galilee faith. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Just think about that question for a minute. John 3.16 was read at Children's Story. What did it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him does not perish. Do you not care that we're perishing? They thought maybe that him sleeping in a storm meant he didn't care, when actually his care for them perishing caused him to leave heaven and come to earth. So this is like, if God is ever offended, this would be one of the most offensive questions. Don't you care that I perish? Yes, I care. That's why I'm here. I care that you're perishing. But they asked the question anyway. I don't know if they believed when they woke him up that he was going to solve the problem. I don't know if they believed that he had authority, because they're pretty surprised when he does. But it does parallel another, can you think of another story where there's a, someone sleeping in a boat in a storm and they wake him up? Jonah. And when they wake him up in Jonah, they, they don't say, calm the wind and the waves. They say, wake up, call on your God, perhaps your God will have mercy on us. So maybe they're calling on Jesus, not as an authority over the wind and the waves, but as an intercessor to God. They wake him up because they think they're going to perish, and they assume that means Jesus doesn't care. So here's the first trademark of Galilean faith. Don't you care that we're perishing? Galilee faith is not convinced of God's unconditional love. Like, they felt the love when he multiplied the loaves. They're not feeling the love when he sleeps in the boat. They thought he might love, but it's not unconditional love. It's actually love if my circumstances feel like it's love. So Galilee faith judges God's character through the lens of human circumstances. My circumstances make me feel this way, therefore God must be this way. We can move beyond Galilee faith. Galilee faith is the kind that thinks, you know, God, God loves me, he shows favor to me because, look, I got the job. And then when we lose the job, he must not love me. Maybe the storm is not just circumstances out there. Maybe the storm you're experiencing is your own sin. And you think this conditional love way about your own sin. Like when you were doing well, and you were studying your Sabbath school lesson, and you are keeping away from the bad things, and you, you didn't see any sins in your life, God really loved you. But then when you fail, I don't think God loves me anymore. That is Galilee faith. It is not faith in unconditional love. It's faith in conditional love. You cared, but now you're asleep, so you don't care. So we can move beyond Galilee faith. You know there's a song that probably every one of us is saying, and there's a little line in it that we really need to get. Jesus loves me, and it says, Jesus loves me when I'm good, 
when I do the things I should. Does he love you when you're good? And then it says, Jesus loves me when I'm bad, even though it makes him sad. That's a really profound line. Jesus loves you when you're bad. His love is unconditional. A pretty basic thing, unconditional love. Faith grows when we have, when the object of our faith gets bigger. We're not just putting our faith in a God out there. We're putting our faith in a God of unconditional love. So it is the character of God that we're aiming for. I think sometimes I have thought of faith as having faith in God's plans. I'm going to challenge us not to focus our faith on knowing God's plan, but to focus our faith on knowing God's character. You following? Because as soon as the plan goes in a way I don't expect, then I lose my faith. And the plan often goes in a way I don't expect. But if my faith is not in the plan, but in the character of God, then when the plan gets all twisted up, I hold on to his character and I say, God, you're still good. God, I found you asleep in my storm and I know you're still good. God, I really am terrified and I know you're still good. And you know, it's actually not God's plans that aren't perfect. God's plans are perfect. It's my assumptions about his plans that are flawed. So I have done this. I've put my faith in my assumptions about God's plans. It's a very unstable place to put our faith. So a better faith, remember we began this by saying, a great faith is not is having faith in something better. Not doing better at faith, but having faith in something better. So we're going to take our faith from putting faith in our estimation of God's plan to putting faith in God's character. He's a God of love, no matter how silent it feels like he is. That sleeping Jesus, he loves you. He might be silent right now, and there's a reason, a faith-growing reason, why he's choosing to interact with you the way he's interacting with you. If I trust that he has a perfect character, which is best summarized by love, but also patience and kindness and wisdom and uh, justice, all these things that God says he has, if I hold on to that, I have an anchor that doesn't change when my circumstances get really messed up. Put your faith in God's character. We talk about his character a lot. It's part of our vision statement here, because it's perfect. It's awesome, and it's unchanging, and it's really the only anchor we have. God says he is this way, and he is faithful to be that. Put your faith in God's character. So here's a few summaries of what I've just said. Don't assume that God's apparent silence is indifference. It's not. He does care if you drown. He's not sleeping because he doesn't love you. Trust that a sleeping Jesus is still a loving Jesus. And stop judging God's character through the lens of your circumstances. Circumstances are bad, therefore God must not be faithful. Start seeing your circumstances through the lens of God's character. And finally, stop pretending to know God's plan and start pursuing a knowledge of his character. That's how we move beyond Galilee faith. But there's another question, and this one's so helpful too. So the object of our faith, unconditional love. Next verse. And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. That's the same Greek word as a great storm. It's a mega storm. It's a mega calm. 
And he actually had to speak to both the wind and the waves because if he just spoke to the wind, those waves would have kept going for some time. If you shake your water bottle and you stop, the water keeps moving. So this is a striking display of authority because he doesn't just stop the storm, he stops immediately the effects of the storm, which is completely against nature. They might have thought, well, perfect timing. When he said that, the wind stopped. But this is an obvious, like the elements of nature are submitting to his authority. It's pretty impressive stuff. So they see this and they realize that was no coincidence. This man in our boat, he's not just a great teacher. He just spoke to water and it obeyed him. So they ask the next question. Oh, he asked a question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He's moving them beyond Galilee faith. He says, there's something more. There's a deeper level of faith here. And the response is, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So here's what they're struggling with. Who is this? They're struggling with Jesus' divinity. Is he, is he another great man or is he God? Who is this? And even the, the winds and the sea obey him, they're struggling with his authority. Divine authority. That's, that's the other trademark, is that Galilee faith is not convinced of his divine authority. So here's two objects to put our faith in. Unconditional love and divine authority. And divine authority was something, if you read the rest of Scripture about Galilee, they really struggled with who is this man. And what authority does he have? Galilee faith is impressed by what Jesus does, but it is ignorant of who he is. So if we go to another story just two chapters earlier, think the words divine and authority, just to show that this is a trademark of Galilean faith. There is a, a church or a shrine. You can kind of see it. it looks like a spaceship. And it's built over some ruins in Capernaum. Capernaum is where Peter lived, the home of Peter. So if Jesus had a home, which, you know, we, we think of him as homeless, but if there's any place that could be considered home for Jesus, it would have been Capernaum during his Galilean ministry, probably in the home of Peter. So right behind me in that picture is a synagogue, and right in front of me is a residential area. And as you walk into that church, it has a glass floor so that you can look down into the home, which is fun because this would have been the home where they tore the roof off to lower the paralyzed man down to Jesus. So maybe I was standing right there where at one time someone ripped a roof off and went down in there to see Jesus. And there's pretty good evidence that this is probably the place. You see a, like a white spot on the side, and that's a third century plaster. Because ever since the third century, pilgrims have been coming to this place calling it the home of Peter. So we didn't have too many years for the story to wander. So good evidence, early evidence, that this is a significant place for Christians. Well, in this story, it's in Mark chapter 2, Jesus sees the man, and it would have been very natural for him to say, um, get up and walk, because you're paralyzed. I just solved the problem. You're, you're paralyzed, get up and walk. But he doesn't say that first. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that, he knew that would cause a problem. And he says it anyway, and it causes a problem. So he says, they say, 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? So think of the words divine authority. They didn't believe he was divine. Should be a question mark there. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Not divine. And then Jesus does it, and he tells them why. He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So Galilee faith struggled with divine, and it struggled with authority. And here Jesus stands in the boat and displays authority over nature. They'd seen him heal bones, and, and the winds and the waves obey him. I won't go through all of these. Jesus has authority. I'll just quote the one that we all know. These are all verses about Jesus' authority. But you know the verse that says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. So Jesus has all authority. I think this is an important point. Don't, don't let me lose you even though it's 12. Okay? Authority is not the same thing as power. So, simple definitions. Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the permission to exercise power. Yes, God is powerful. He's not just powerful, like he's in a power struggle with Satan, and whichever one is stronger will win. He's not just powerful. He has universe permission to exercise his power. So when he says your sins are forgiven, it's not just that it was a power contest. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So something happened to sin in the same way that those waters that were doing this suddenly went like this. Like at the word of God, those waters obeyed the authority of Christ. And at the word of Jesus, your sins are forgiven at the authority of Christ. Here's the idea. If he says it's so, it's so. Which means... There's a, there is something I've heard more of about in the past few years in um, leadership conversations called the imposter syndrome. You've heard of the imposter syndrome? You feel like an imposter because if you get promoted to a, a management position, it's like, oh, I'm not really supposed to be here. Everyone else is, they're doing great and I'm an imposter. I, I'm in a league I don't belong in, right? You know, what, you know what I'm talking about? So there's imposter syndrome if you start your own online blog, like I'm not really a blogger. If you write a book, I'm not really a book author. I'm an imposter, and if they really know who I was, I wouldn't belong in this group. So the truth that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins means that you do not need to wander into the kingdom of God with an imposter syndrome. Did you follow me? He has authority to forgive you, so when I feel, oh man, I'm still so worthless, I'm actually questioning the authority of heaven that said your sins are forgiven. I need to get this one. He doesn't just have power to combat sin. He has the authority. He has the right. That's why it says in John chapter 1, it says, uh, he gave them the right to become children of God. He gave them the right you have the right to be in the kingdom of God. If you've been hanging your head feeling worthless and struggling about your forgiveness, here's the message. Let's eradicate the imposter syndrome from the kingdom of God with the truth that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sin. Not just power that calms those waters. He has permission from heaven and earth, from the powers of darkness and from the powers of, of glory 
He has permission to act in your life, to change you, to forgive you, to love you, to create you anew, to put a new heart in you, to make you into something you never were before, to give gifts and spiritual gifts that you never knew you had. He has authority to do that. So let's just stop arguing with him. The wind and the waves didn't talk back. They obeyed. So how do we move beyond Galilee faith? Stop feeling like an imposter as a child of God. And put your faith in divine authority. We're going to put our faith in something better. Because a better faith is not doing better at faith. It's having faith in something better. I want you to notice the final thing. So there's a different response a while later. (laughs) One time they're in a boat and he's sleeping. And the other time they're in a boat and he's walking on water. Just notice the different response. So the bottom one there is... Uh, is the second one where he's walking a while. The, the top one we just read from Mark 4. It said, and they were filled with great fear. So what was their emotional response? Fear. And they said to one another, who is this? So fear and questioning who God is. After some time with Christ, there was a transformation in them where they had the same type of experience where they saw the divine authority of Christ. Notice the different response. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So where there was once only fear, there's now worship. Where there was once questioning who is this, there's now an affirmative statement, truly, you are the Son of God. Which tells me those people in the boat, they had moved beyond Galilee faith. They'd moved beyond just being impressed and saying, This is a God who has unconditional love. This is a God with divine authority. And that's the transformation I'm hoping to see in me, is rather than fear, like I want to distance myself from that great thing, that when I would see God and it would be awesome, I would say, I desire that thing. I'm going to worship God. And rather than saying, who could this be? I'm just so confused because this is beyond me. I'd say, yeah, I'm still confused, but truly you are God. It is a faith that moves us toward Jesus rather than away from Jesus. Let's move beyond Galilee faith. We're going to close with with some song. You can come on up if you're doing the closing song and lead out here. Put your faith in something better. So as we walk away from this, it's not a, a matter of shame like, you guys need to grow in faith, so read your Bible more. I hope you do read your Bible more. But that's not the point. It's, it's not that you need to try really hard to think better things. We have a God that is higher than we've imagined. We can put our faith in something better. Two, two things to put our faith in today. Trust that God really loves you unconditionally. That he really is divine. He really has authority. And that's the God that we put our faith in.